This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello there and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. It is commonly estimated that one in four pregnancies fails to thrive and ends spontaneously in a miscarriage, most before they have been revealed to the world or even suggested by the hint of a baby bump. This can be devastating, extremely physically painful, or both. And yet, despite its prevalence, we have long been unable to talk about miscarriage in any adequate breadth or depth. If we do, we tend to do so awkwardly, quickly, and in the most general terms. We squirm, we whisper, and we avoid asking questions. We just don't understand the experience well enough or the nature of the complex grief that can hit hard in its wake. But miscarriage deserves so much more than these scant responses it intends to elicit. We need to approach this human experience with greater empathy and an allied, compassionate curiosity so that, ultimately, we can improve the support that's on offer for all of us who may be affected. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with a psychotherapist who specializes in working with women who have experienced pregnancy loss or struggle to conceive. And we'll be talking not only about the effects of pregnancy loss on women and men, but we'll also talk about what we need to do to change things for the better. Today's show is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union, which has been proudly serving the Armed Forces veterans and their families for over 80 years. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces of the Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Armin Brott. We'll begin exploring the intimately taboo topic of miscarriage when positive parenting continues right after this. Did you know 26 million Americans have kidney disease and most don't know it? The day I was diagnosed, I didn't know what to do. I called the National Kidney Foundation, and the young lady who answered stayed on the phone with me and walked me through step by step. She, too, was surviving kidney disease, and she showed me there could be life after kidney disease. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Julia Bueno, who's the author of The Brink of Being, Talking About Miscarriage. Julia, thanks so much for joining us from London. It's my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about how common miscarriage is and whether there's any information that anybody has about what causes them. Um. Well, miscarriage, we think, we guess, is, happens to affect one in four pregnancies. It's very difficult to get the exact data on this, um, partly because of the slightly um, patchy nature of research that has grown up over the years and different, different uses of um, variables and the way things are defined. But we, we kind of use that as a rule of thumb here in the UK. Okay. Um, causation is still pretty um, scarce in our, in our knowledge. And we, you know, one, one thing that is just so awful for couples and, and women who go through this is that they, they quite often just don't know what the cause is. Um, 
In the UK, I think it might be different in the States, I'm not sure, but, it, but a couple won't be referred to have any tests unless they've had three concurrent miscarriages, which right. is pretty cruel, really. I, I think that's about um, right. There, yeah. are moves, there are moves afoot to make that too, but we're not there yet, and that was a recent recommendation from Europe. Um, and those who do go on to have investigations in a recurrent miscarriage clinic, probably more than half um, of those who go through all the testing are still mm-hmm. left in the dark. Um, there's a huge portfolio of research going on, which is encouraging, but it's taken a woeful long time to get there. Well, part of, the, is, part of the problem seems to be that, as you mentioned, one in four pregnancies, but a number of those, as far as I, I've been reading, have to do with the fact that, that a woman may not even know that she's pregnant, and so it wouldn't even be considered a miscarriage because she would have no way of knowing that there was a pregnancy to end prematurely. Well, uh, that, that may well be true, but as I understand, the research is based on clinically recognized pregnancies. Okay, so okay. Those, so those are women who have actually um, you know, been recorded in a hospital. But you're absolutely okay. right. There are plenty of people who have pregnancies that might not go, you know, might not be clinically recorded and miscarriages might not be clinically recorded. So, you know, it might even be that there might be there are more. And there's also certainly the case that I think applies uh, in the U.S. as well as the U.K., that more and more women are conceiving later on in life. And we do know that that is a contributing factor to miscarriage. So this is a problem that's not going away fast. You know, one of the things I, I know when I, I did some research on miscarriage for one of my books that I wrote on, on uh, what called The Expectant Father, for fathers who were are going through pregnancy and childbirth, and one of the things that was, was interesting that did not seem terribly satisfying to women to hear was that, oh, the, uh, a miscarriage is, is sometimes a good thing because it ends a pregnancy that where there was a high likelihood of, of birth defects or something like that. I, that it, it sounds like a, a nice, the, the intention is good, but that that really doesn't help the person who's just experienced one. Well, I, I, I wholly agree with you. I certainly have never met anybody who's found a, a kind of benign con, con, consolation phrase like that to be in any way helpful, not least because we just don't know. Um, a sporadic mas- a miscarriage will, will never be tested. And as I say, the vast majority of miscarriages, we just don't know. There is an idea that that may well be the case, that there are sort of g- genetic problems that happen in development and the, and the baby can't um, you know, can't develop in the womb, but we just don't know that. And being being told that is yes, is, is not of any help at all. Certainly not in my experience. Yeah. Uh, how did you begin to get into this part of research, this particular aspect of it? Yeah, sure. Well, um, it all stems from personal experience. Uh, about 17 years ago, um, my first miscarriage, my first pregnancy, forgive me, um, ended in a, in a late miscarriage. So in the 22nd week of pregnancy, I um, went into labor and over the course of a day and a half gave birth to two baby girls. Now in the UK, uh, the boundary between miscarriage and stillbirth is at 23 weeks and um, six days. So our, our, mm. our, bar- our boundary is four weeks later than, than the US and Australia. So um, that was my experience with my first pregnancy. And as you can imagine, it was a pretty catastrophic event oh. in my life. And <clears throat> I, there's no doubt about it uh, still that the kind of tremendous distress that I experienced, and actually undiagnosed mental ill health, I think there's no doubt about it. You know, as a psychotherapist, I, I, I know this now, that I had some 
undiagnosed trauma from the event. But my distress was compounded and made so much worse by the silence that, that shrouded it. Um, people just did not want to approach the event or talk to me about it. And it was a deeply desolating and isolating experience, um, which enraged me, but also kind of fascinated me um, and, mm -hmm. and has ever since. And I subsequently became involved um, with a charity in the UK that, that the sort of leading charity to support miscarriage and promote awareness in the search. Um, and then went on to qualify as a as a psychotherapist. I, I was sort of on the road, on track to do that anyway, but it certainly galvanized my decision. Um, and I then went on to, uh, I, I had two living boys, and in between those boys I had three other miscarriages at different gestations. So personally and professionally along the way, I've been thinking a lot about miscarriage over the years, as you can imagine. Oh, I can, I, well, I mean... Uh... I'd like to say that I can imagine, but I think, and honestly, I can't. It just, it sounds absolutely awful. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the effect that this has on, on the relationship. I mean, your own relationship and then also the women that you've worked with, because although the woman is going through the miscarriage physically, there is a connection to the pregnancy that the father has as well. And when that pregnancy ends prematurely, so do his hopes and dreams for for the baby, and Absolutely. so can talk yeah, talk a little no, bit I, about how that worked in I, your I, relationship um, and uh, other. Sure, I, I write about this um, quite a bit. I, I write a, I devote a chapter to this because certainly um, culturally and in the research as well, there is a woeful lack of attention for um, the partner of a, of a miscarrying woman, both female partners and, and men. But you're absolutely right. There's no doubt in my mind that men can forge very profound bonds with their unborn from a very early age. This day and age, um, my, 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 in my parents' generation, you know, they weren't, women didn't frequently get a pregnancy test. Pregnancy tests sort of came into the mainstream in the 80s, sort of to you know, buy them in a pharmacy. So these days, men are involved with pregnancies, can be involved with pregnancies from, from you know, I have a case study in my book, you know, he, the, the partner bought the test and sat there with the woman, so he's really involved there from the beginning. He might attend scans. We also know that the experience of being in the scanning room and seeing a baby on screen is enormously bonding. Oh, yeah. Um, and and I think that's a really it's a disenfranchised grief anyway, but a male, that a partner's bond is also sort of disenfranchised within a disenfranchised grief and not understood. I don't want to, I wouldn't say it's universal. I think it's fair to say I've worked with a lot of men who sometimes with great regret feel badly about the fact that they didn't feel that bond. You know, they, they wish they did for their wife's sake, mm -hmm. but they just, they, they describe that just not feeling it in the same way. And um, they're certainly right about that. Um, and, of course, you know, that, that there's, that it's human nature and everybody's different. But but I wanted to make a case for, I think, it's, which is fair, there are lots of men who feel that they're misunderstood. I also write about the sort of social conditioning of men. Um, I absolutely believe that it happens, um, so definitely in the culture that I am in, that boys are still conditioned to be stoic and supportive and to, and to not be vulnerable and not to be vulnerable in grief. Mm -hmm. And there's also, I think, tremendous pressure on, on boys and men um, in my culture to be to be fertile, to be the stud, you know, yeah. to be the... Yeah. 
even not so long ago, you know, we're in 2019 and we're, uh, there are a lot of woke young men and women around, but I only recently heard um, someone, uh, a pregnancy being revealed and the partner being referred to as, oh, he's, he's not a Jaffa, which, you know, it's, 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 I think to me speaks volumes of where we're still at, that men are supposed to be fertile from puberty to their death and they, yeah. they're not allowed to be broody. Um, so there are lots of factors, I think, that lend themselves to, to um, yeah, as, as you say, this bond that isn't recognized. I'm talking with Julia Bueno, who's the author of The Brink of Being, talking about miscarriage. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to keep talking to Julia about miscarriage and the, the man's side of it, but, but much more about the woman's side of it and her experiences, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my experience with the whole thing as well. Um, I'm Armin Brat. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Julia Bueno, who's the author of The Brink of Being, Talking About Miscarriage. And just before the break, we were talking about your the, the work that you've done, the chapter that you did, and then your, your being so wonderfully aware of some of the obstacles or the issues that men face around that. And I just was going to mention my own experience, and this is getting to be a number of decades ago. A girlfriend got pregnant and... She had a miscarriage, which I suppose in, in the grand scheme of my life turned out not to be a bad thing. But um, everybody asked me, how's she doing? And is she okay? And But nobody ever asked me how I was doing. And that really fits in very well with your with what you were saying about how men are expected to be stoic and, and be the... the provider protector for the for the woman and and not not that that's a bad thing i mean of course that we should do that particularly when a, a woman is pregnant we should be taking care of her i have no no objection to that but what i what i was objecting to years later i don't even think it hit me then it was only years later that it occurred to me that i had some connection there as well and so the the, the whole socialization thing comes internally and externally it's it's really interesting mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that happened to you, but it's it's a story that rhymes still to this day. Um, and I think there's a sort of another factor at play in the UK, and I'm, I, I can't account for the US provision of healthcare, but you know we, we have a problem in our hands in the UK, and the NHS is struggling for resources and struggling for staff. That's the National and, Health Service, right? Yeah, and, and partners who are, um, if a woman attends, not, well, not all women wind up in hospital, um, but, it, but those who do... Um, might find themselves not having the treatment that they deserve simply through lack of resources and a bit of training and, as I say, staff. So I hear stories, as my husband had to go through, of, of men and, indeed, female partners stepping up and, and having to do, sort of, frankly, a bit of nursing. Hmm. Um, so that that doesn't really help matters either. 
You know, Julie, I want to get into some of the, the advice that you've got for people about miscarriage. And, and two areas I want you to talk about, and we can spend some time on this, is is we talked about a little bit about what not to say about, oh, that was it's, it's okay because it's ending a pregnancy where there was some sort of genetic abnormality. But also how how people should cope with miscarriage but and, and how other people who are not experiencing it should talk about it and deal with it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think you've already kind of nailed it in that most people I know who are grieving a miscarriage um, and therefore, you know, are, are very upset and occupied as you are in grief because there is a real loss there. There's a loss of a potential child, um, which is so misunderstood that, that the, the weight, the depth, the breadth of the loss. Um, they need to talk about it. It's a story to be told. It's an important life story. And I think one of the most wonderful things you can do, um, short of at the very least saying, I'm sorry, because the likelihood is it was a pretty distressing event. Um, and, and, of course, people experience miscarriage with myriad meanings to pregnancy, myriad meanings to miscarriage. And some, you know, even if a woman isn't grieving too hard and, and is sort of fairly emotionally okay about it, it was still not a nice uh, physical or visceral event. So starting with I'm no. sorry is a good place, but I, I would urge people to go further and to, to, to have the kind of compassionate curiosity that you might any other uh, tricky life event, really tough life event, that the sort of the listening and the hearing and wanting to, to, to be there for someone. And, and as I say, most people I know, given half a chance in which they get in my consulting room, they get in the support groups that I help to run, um, People start, they, they, they want to tell the story of the pregnancy, and it usually starts way back. A miscarriage doesn't begin and end with the bleeding or the, the pain. Uh, it's a story of a, of a baby that begun to nestle in mind. Maybe it could be years before the pregnancy. Um, some, some couples, we know that one in six couples struggle to conceive. Um, it might have been you know, a real battle to get pregnant in the first place. Um, sometimes... You know, it can be over a decade and even more, the list goes on. But it, so that's where the story begins. Um, but we, we don't tend to, we tend to foreclose those conversations. So I think just going back to your question, it's, it's about talking. Mm-hmm. Talking a lot, I guess. And Well, I mean, as against, I mean, I do, having said that, of course, I don't mean that, I don't mean to suggest that people should or they have to. There's, it's not. I don't want to be prescriptive anyway. Of course, it could be that you choose for it to be an intensely private experience, and you might not want to talk about it. Um, but perhaps you can gauge that. In, in, you know, I think a good friendship or a good acquaintanceship can kind of work that out. But mm-hmm. err on the side of, of um, err on the side of, of, of curiosity, yeah. um, and you'll know if someone doesn't want to talk about it. But <laughs> But I think chances are, if someone's in grief, they do, as they do in any other grief. They want to talk about the life they've lost. And in the case of miscarriage, it's a future, intangible, ambiguous, difficult thing to sum up that yeah. needs words. You know, I know this is something that's going to vary by per- from person to person and couple to couple. And, and you mentioned that there's the, the line between stillbirth and miscarriage. And th- that that line is different in Australia than, than in the UK, mm-hmm. and it's different in the US. But... I'm just this maybe a morbid kind of a question, but with a stillbirth, a lot of people will have a burial of the child. With yeah. a miscarriage, where the 
how, how, what do you do with the remains? Well, in the UK, actually, there's been a huge uh, kind of groundswell change of, of practice um, in in hospitals. The protocols have changed enormously. And that actually was, I, I write about this in my book, it was mired in a pretty unhappy bit of history uh, um, around fetal remains in, in practices in the UK hospitals. There was just some horrific um, practices that came to light through the media. And as a result of which, um, there was a lot of horror and campaigning. And now there are new protocols where miscarried babies, um, hospital trusts will offer couples um, a dispositional op- options. So they'll, they'll offer, depending again, depending on the resources of the hospital um, and a, a, a very large, urban, wealthy hospital in central London I know well will be able to offer a hell of a lot more than a, a, a rural, poorer hospital mm-hmm. elsewhere sure. in the UK. But in, in the idea is that a couple will be offered a cremation or a burial, or they can choose to do neither, and it will be disposed in a, in a sensitive, dignified way. Um, that's the idea. And, of course, uh, you know, what, what couples do in private is, is up to them, and I certainly know that, that um, a lot of people do um, conduct private ceremonies. Um, and might dispose of their pregnancy remains in their garden or in a woodland, or you know there are some public health regulations they have to stick by. And but what is interesting about uh, funerals um, is, is that they're very they're marooned, that they're, they're they tend to be kind of private events. It's not a sort mm-hmm. of funerals that people feel comfortable to invite their friends and family to or to ask someone to take a day off work to attend like they would any other funeral. I think my experience of a lot of grieving couples, they feel a little bit almost embarrassed to do that, which I think is so reflective of the Hmm. disenfranchised nature of the grief and the the kind of misunderstanding of the relationship with the unborn. It really, it's um, it's fascinating. That makes sense. You know, Julie, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask a, a question that may seem a little odd. But in, you, you said you have two boys, and yeah. I'm I'm wondering: is there a hereditary component to this? That the the daughter of a woman who has had multiple miscarriages is more likely herself to be to have multiple miscarriages. Is there any research about that, or or even if whether well. whether it's p- perhaps passed through the the sons? I mean, could your sons end up? Possibly, because it's possible that there's something on the sperm side that's causing the miscarriages as well, right? Not that I'm aware of. Of course, someone might challenge me, but I, I, I'm pretty confident saying that we're just okay. not there yet. We are okay. at the tip of the iceberg in understanding pregnancy loss. Um, and as I say, you know, the Tommies, which is one of the, and I think it probably is one of the internationally leading um, centres for, for research on miscarriage in the UK, has a huge portfolio going on. But, but these stuck trials take years, years and years and years to, to kind of recruit and, and, and um, conduct and collate the, the um, data. So the balls are rolling, but we're, we're no way near answering questions like that. No, I, I think that I wasn't expecting a specific answer because I just think yeah. it's something that's really fascinating. I mean, I find the whole, as you, I find the whole topic really interesting and uh, it's it's puzzling it's that there's so little information. It's so, yeah. so um, complicated, yeah. and it keys into so many political and ethical and just difficult issues for us as human yeah. beings, I think. But ones we need to deal with. And uh, Julia yeah, Bueno, and it's B-U-E-N-O, the author of The Brink of Being, talking about miscarriage, deals with a lot of these issues in the book. It's a great book. Julia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
This message is for all of you sitting in the passenger seat, and apologies if it gets a little uncomfortable, but how does it feel to be at the mercy of someone who thinks a random text is more important than your life? Someone who takes their eyes off the road while speeding along in a three-ton hunk of steel. Freaky, right? Well, why not just ask them to stop? Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment, this one on one of my favorite topics, reading with kids. Dear Mr. Dad, My 10-year-old son is quite smart and perfectly capable of reading, but it's always been a challenge for him. And unfortunately, his teachers aren't doing very much to help the situation other than send home notes and report cards saying that he's reading below his grade level. My wife and I both read a lot, and we've tried encouraging him in all sorts of ways, but nothing seems to work. How can we help our son become a better and more frequent reader? It's sometimes hard for those of us who love books to understand that reading doesn't come naturally or easily to everyone. But the fact is that a lot of children, even smart ones who have plenty of good role models around, struggle with reading. However, because so many factors, including learning disabilities, not being ready, or simple lack of interest, can cause reading problems, Overcoming them can be sometimes a frustrating process for everyone. That said, here are a few things you can do to help. Read to him and have him read to you. Reading to a 10-year-old might sound odd to some people, in part because we have a tendency to associate bedtime stories with little kids. But novels, movies, and plays are stories too, and humans have been telling stories around campfires for thousands of years. So I suggest that you grab one of the books you loved when you were your son's age and read it to him, or take turns reading it to each other. If he stumbles, be patient and don't judge. Make reading a regular part of the nighttime routine, even if you need to extend his bedtime by 20 minutes or so. Just make sure you pick something that will hold your son's and your attention. Don't be pushy. It's natural to want to share the books we love with others, but just because you're a mystery fan, a steampunk aficionado, or read only history and other nonfiction, doesn't mean your son will be remotely interested in any of those things. In fact, if you've been pushing your tastes on your son, you may have inadvertently contributed to his reading problems instead of helping resolve them. Don't be a snob. Most kids love movies. Did your son like The Fault in Our Stars or Maze Runner? How about Hugo, Ready Player One, or Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, or Ender's Game? And let's not forget about series such as Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, and Percy Jackson. All are based on books. Starting with something your son is already interested in could help draw him into reading. And don't rule out graphic novels. If your goal is to get your son interested in reading and improve his skills, what he's reading is less important than how much time he spends doing it. Get his vision checked. A lot of kids have trouble reading because they can't make out what's on the page. Vision problems can make reading not only a chore, but also a physically painful experience. The answer could be as simple as getting glasses, or, if he already wears them, getting a new prescription. Celebrate small steps. Kids who have trouble reading often feel that there's something wrong with them. Getting made fun of and being called names by their peers only makes things worse. The natural reaction is to avoid reading. So 
work with your son to come up with manageable goals. Say, finish a 200-page book in a month. And make a big deal every time he accomplishes one of those goals. With time, gradually make the goals more challenging. If you've got a comment or a question or a suggestion for something you think we ought to be doing or not doing here at Positive Parenting, please do let us know. You can drop us a line through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. But don't go yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this from the MrDad.com radio network. This heavyweight bout is about to begin. The challenger wears white trunks with a blue stripe, and the champ is wearing, uh, looks like an examination gown from the doctor's office. And from the back, we can... Ooh, that's not pretty. Champ, what's with the crazy getup? I've got to take care of my family. Yeah, so? Well, when you love your family, you got to go in and get those important medical screenings. A lot of potentially deadly diseases can be treated if you catch them in time. So you wear the examination gown because... Because I'm a real man. Real men take care of their families and get those tests. Real men wear gowns. Okay, champ. Good luck. Here we go. <laughs> the champ's not wasting any time. <laughs> it's over. This fight is over. Champ, you barely broke a sweat. Any words for your fans out there? Remember, go to ahrq.gov for a list of the tests they need to get and when to get them. What was that web address again? ahrq.gov. And remember, real men wear gowns. Go to ahrq.gov. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AHRQ, and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome back to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Our children's first digital footprints are made before they can walk, even before they're born. As parents use fertility apps to aid conception, post ultrasound images, and share their baby's hospital mugshots. Then, in rapid succession, come terabytes of baby pictures stored in the cloud, digital baby monitors with built-in artificial intelligence, and real-time updates from daycare. When school starts, there are cafeteria cards that catalog food purchases, bus passes that track when kids are on and off the bus, electronic health records in the nurse's office, and a school surveillance system that has eyes everywhere. Unwittingly, parents, teachers, and other trusted adults are compiling digital dossiers for children that could be available to everyone, friends, employers, law enforcement, forever. In this part of today's show, we're going to be examining the implications of sharenthood, adults' excessive digital sharing of children's data. We're going to be outlining the mistakes that adults make with kids' private information, the risks and the results, and the legal system that enables sharenting. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about why we should think more before we talk about our kids online and how we can get the Internet to forget and us to remember when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Welcome back to 
Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Leah Plunkett, who is the author of Sharon Hood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. Leah, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about the progression of how we got where we are with parents putting every single possible thing that their kids have ever done or not even done yet. I mean, it was you know, with my kids, it wasn't such a big deal. You, we, we, we got a, an ultrasound picture. You put it up on the refrigerator. But now you can you can get 3D videos or 4D videos. You can put them up. You've got, I mean, just an unbelievable amount of stuff. Where are we with sharing stuff about our kids? We are in a space where there are really no boundaries between the life that we think privately in our homes, in our doctor's offices, in our schools, and the life that we are broadcasting everywhere, whether it's on social media, so putting that ultrasound picture up on Facebook rather than on your fridge, or even before you might get an ultrasound picture, but you might be using a fertility tracking bracelet or a fertility app, and you are putting preconception data about your future children into a digital device and service. And that digital data can be aggregated, analyzed, transmitted, and acted upon both by the company that's receiving it, but also by data brokers and really countless downstream third parties that might use it to discern information or make predictions about your children well into the future. So since we have so many devices, from the ones we hold on our hands, our tablets, our smartphones, to the ones we wear on our bodies, like fitness tracking watches and fertility tracking bracelets, we really have lost a boundary between what is private home life and what is leaving the home through the form of digital data. It sounds like, and I'm sure that we're going to get beyond this, but it sounds like what you're talking about is more that you have an objection to the commercialization of the data and the images and stuff like that as opposed to the potential privacy issue that the kids themselves might might raise about how could you possibly post this about me online without asking my permission? Thank you for differentiating between those. I object to both. I object to the ways in which we are taking our children's private lives, and I do think privacy, broadly speaking, should be understood as a zone for self-creation, for exploration, so for making mischief and making mistakes and growing up better for having made them. I object to our taking that away from our kids by documenting almost every aspect of it and sharing it with people in their social network or beyond, as well as sharing it with institutions. In terms of sharing it with institutions, I do focus my objections on the potential for commercialization, but I would also object equally to a government actor or a nonprofit actor getting that data and using it in ways to make predictions or decisions about children's future mm-hmm. opportunities. Yeah. Well, let's let's stay with the with the privacy aspect for a little bit because I think that's something that I think a lot of us probably who have read the newspapers or who have kids, and I'm, I've got uh, my youngest ones in high school, so I'm still thinking about high school things. But you know, we know that there are that kids have limited privacy rights; that they can't keep anything they want in their locker. That schools have a, a right to to images of kids and things like that. So how how do we decide what rights kids have as opposed to what rights parents have to post whatever they want? 
a much better job of that than we do. Currently, kids have essentially no legal rights to privacy that can be asserted against their parents' choices. Of course, if a parent's choice involves privacy violations that were criminal or illegal under a law like abuse and neglect statute. So you can't abuse or neglect your child, heaven forbid, take pictures of it and put those online and say that the abuse and neglect is okay because you were just creating images to share. That would not work. But we don't have the ability for children of any age up until they attain the age of majority to say to their parents, you can't take this picture of me in my diaper. You can't take this picture of me in my prom dress. You can't tell the world on Twitter that I got a great SAT score or that I got a horrible SAT score. And I don't think we are anywhere close to a legal or regulatory regime that mm -hmm. will address that for us. Right. I think that we as parents, and I'm the parent of two kids, sounds like a little younger than yours, um, but I'm the mom of two kids, and I think about this for my own family, and part of why I wrote the book was trying to figure it out for my own family. I think about this as, at the level of values. What sort of values do I want in my household, and how do I as a parent, together with my husband, implement those values because the law really does let me and my husband choose. Right. Well, where do you think that we should come down? I mean, I, come, trying to come up with some sort of a, a nationwide legal definition of privacy and where the line is and, and what you're allowed, I think would be a, an incredible nightmare and is probably going to cause more problems than it solves. It, it really does sound like it's got to be something that needs to be worked out. But how do you decide when you're talking about images of a child who's too young to make a decision? I would encourage parents to think about four main values. The values of play, so setting up private spaces where kids can explore. Values of forgetting, connecting, and respecting. And those values, if they're operationalized thoughtfully, can go a long way toward helping parents think, gee, what is the benefit that I get here? Am I forging a better connection with or on behalf of my child if I rant about my child's temper tantrum on Facebook? Probably not. But to carry out sort of the implementation of the value of connecting, am I forging a better relationship with my child or on behalf of my child if I get an educational technology app that helps teach my child how to speak Hebrew? Maybe I am. And in that case, the kind of sharing, the transmission of kids' private digital data via any type of digital device may well be worth it. You know, the book is called Sharenthood, and we, we are thinking about it, or at least we're starting our discussion anyway. We'll probably switch a little bit, but from the perspective of parents posting things about their kids, but I'm wondering if it works the other way as well in, in the way that you're thinking about these things. And I just was, was reminded of a, of a, a, I guess an event that happened in my, one of my old, older kids' lives. When she was in high school, she wrote a poem and performed it, and it had to do with me. And, mm, and I, remember, I remember talking to her afterwards because she didn't tell me that she was going to perform it. I, I saw it in, in print someplace else, and I said, you really need to be talking to me before you tell some story of mine in front of a bunch of people. I have a right to know that. And she said, you can't tell me what I can do with my art. 
And and I was just wondering. I was just wondering. I I do I do a lot of blogging, and so fast forward to say ten years or so, my youngest daughter and I were in a car accident, and mm. I happened to after I got out of the ambulance, take a picture of her being taken out of the ambulance also, which I put up on my my Facebook account. And I don't think that she even knew about that for probably five or six years, and she found it online. And she was very upset that I had posted that. And I thought, you know, she's absolutely right. I didn't ask her because she was seven or six or something, and she didn't know anything. But then I thought, well, wait, if if I'm a blogger, that's my art. So where where do we where do we draw the line with these things and and does it work work both ways? I love that question. I think it should work both ways and I actually think many schools are starting to talk to our kids younger and younger about digital privacy specifically but also digital citizenship. In fact, Washington state passed the law in 2016 that requires digital citizenship instruction in primary and secondary public schools. So I think our kids may wind up thinking and developing even more approaches here than we do as adults. Uh, So we may be able to learn a lot from them. I do think it should cut both ways. In terms of that question of how to draw the line between the personal and the artistic, or maybe I should say the private and the artistic, or the private and the political. I've been involved for many years in nonprofit board service, including with Planned Parenthood, which is an organization where this idea of your personal path to power and your journey is, you know, involves often a lot of private soul searching. And so I do think that we need, we cannot be sanitized and we can't disconnect ourselves from our experiences and how they shape us. But I do think that there's room for all of us, whether we are a kid, a parent, a blogger, a painter, an activist, to be having values-based discussions. And even with the people closest to us, maybe coming up with values-based agreements. And I don't mean you have to write it down and sign it and notarize it, but I mean kind of rules of thumb of I'll ask you before I post a picture or I will check in with you before I you know, engage in political speech that talks about our family. I do think that there's a way to have those conversations that is healthy but ultimately generative of art, writing, political discourse, and all those other forms of collective expression. Talking with Leah Plunkett, who's the author of Sharenthood, why we should think before we talk to our talk about our kids online. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Leah and get into some of the commercialization aspects of it and the government control aspects of it. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brad. If you're just joining us, talking with Leah Plunkett, who's the author of Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. So, Willie, we talked a little bit about the the privacy aspects and the conversations we need to be having with our kids and coming up with something which I think is going to be, again, as I mentioned earlier, a, a discussion that's going to have to happen on a unique basis in every family because people are going to draw the lines 
in different places. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think that for every family, having a digital privacy discussion or even a formal digital privacy plan with a few rules of the road is absolutely necessary. And what do you do in a situation where a child discovers something that he or she didn't want or decides now would like it not to be there? We don't have the kinds of laws that I know that they've got in in European countries and maybe the EU as a whole about the right to forget and and the ability to take things down. That around in in this country, it seems like things just last forever. Is is there a way? Do does anybody have recourse if there's something there that, uh, on second thought, you've decided really shouldn't be? You're absolutely right. We don't have any sort of federal law that gives us a right to be forgotten or a right to eraser. So we are left dealing with a case by case context. And so, for anyone who's had something either that they may have consented to or or not consented to. I think that the first recourse is to go to that platform or that provider and follow their procedures for requesting deletion or correction. Now, depending on the specific context in which the information is shared about a child, there may be additional levels of legal protection. I'm thinking mostly about education. There are federal and state laws that deal with youth privacy in the education context that do give kids, as asserted through their parents if they're under 18, greater protections around accessing data and requesting correction or deletion if it's something that a school system or district has shared. So if it's in an education context, there may be more protection. And I always remind people If there's something out there that you really feel is deeply damaging and you're just not getting anywhere with a particular provider or platform, do not underestimate the power of a good litigator. Even without a comprehensive federal privacy law for youth or a comprehensive federal legal right to be forgotten, a creative and zealous litigator, even sometimes just by writing a letter and using some old-fashioned causes of action, can get a company to move, in part because they may not want to deal with the hassle. Okay, so let's switch gears and talk about the the commercialization part, I think, which is something that probably not a lot of people think about, is you're talking about using the images to do, to make predictive decisions about the kinds of products that you should be offered, about maybe where your child might be a likely candidate to go to school, or who knows what else that people could come up with, depending on the various algorithms that are out there. And and companies are going to be somewhat less swayed, maybe, uh, by getting a letter from a litigator. How do you how do you regulate, it, or can you even, what can be done with the images and the data you post? This is an area where I think we do need a comprehensive new federal youth digital privacy law that directly regulates tech companies and limit their ability to extract, use, share, and take other actions with private information they get about children. Because I think under our current system, which is relying on parents, and in some cases kids, but mostly parents, to accept terms and conditions of use, privacy policies, and other click-wrap agreements that 
no one really reads, and even if you did read them, good luck understanding what they actually mean because they really always have some sort of get-out-of-jail-free language for the provider, which says, and we can use this data in any other way we choose, yeah. or to improve your user experience, or to offer <laughs> you new products. And so unless we come up with comprehensive nationwide legal response to say, look, companies, when you get images of children or data about children or you extract data from the images, you cannot use it for anything other than a specific purpose that a parent has clearly and in a limited way opted into. For instance, what comes to mind for me is the big article in the New York Times just about a week ago that talked about how images from social media of kids have been used to power facial recognition software, so surveillance technology. And that article details how images of toddlers from 2005 have been on the front lines of training this essentially spy product. And that there's no way for any individual parent to know that and prevent it. So that's where we need comprehensive law reform. Well, in the absence of that, what do you suggest that people do? Because, I mean, there's, there's really nothing right now that we can do. There's no recourse, right? I would suggest that parents and grandparents, teachers and so on, never post any pictures of kids who are not fully dressed. Even if it's an innocent picture, it can be tempting for the wrongdoers out there who can use Photoshop and other technologies to manufacture pornographic images of youth. I suggest that parents avoid surveillance or tracking technologies on their kids and teens unless they are absolutely necessary and there's no alternative. I advise parents to stay away from using sensor-enabled or Internet of Things devices like smart diapers, diapers that measure urine output of infants and collect that very intimate data. Again, unless there might be a medical reason that you would need to track that level of specificity. And I encourage all parents to adopt low-tech or no-tech approaches to things. For instance, if you want to, I talked earlier about, you know, feeling like you might want to rant about your toddler's tantrum, something that may or may not be close to home for me. A low-tech way of doing that is for me to text my best friend from college. That's still sharing. I'm still using a digital device to capture information about my child and put it out into the world. But it's a much lower risk way of doing it because unless a phone is, is hacked or um, my friend, which she would never do, takes a screenshot of the text and shares it, that is a lot more private than posting that same rant on Facebook or Twitter. So those are some things that parents can do in the course of daily life that really should not limit their opportunities too much but could make some nice protective difference for their kids. What do you think is the downside for the kids? Because I, I wonder, I mean, you're, you're a lawyer, and you, you teach at, at a law school, so you probably think about this thing. I don't know if you're on anybody's short list to be a Supreme Court nominee, but at some, at some <laughs> point, yeah, at, at some, point so. some of our kids, <laughs> the, the listeners of some of the people who are, are the kids of the listeners right now, uh, you know, they may be. And somebody could, I could imagine this t- 10, 15 years from now, somebody dragging through and saying, look, your parents posted this picture about you when you were two years old and we don't want to have you on the Supreme Court. I mean, it's the, the, the ramifications seem just 
unimaginable. I mean, literally unimaginable that we just cannot imagine them. They are. One of the things that the New York Times said in that facial recognition piece I just mentioned, they said somewhat rhetorically, who would have predicted, and I'm paraphrasing here slightly, but who would have predicted a decade and a half ago that images of toddlers would be used to train surveillance technology? The answer is, at that point, really no one was. The answer for now is we should all expect that information about our kids is being used and will be used in ways that we cannot anticipate or control that can have real implications for their futures, like the potential Supreme Court nominee who gets sideswiped by something that a parent shares, or that same nominee who maybe even, heaven forbid, gets rejected from law school before they can even become a potential Supreme Court nominee because some sort of predictive algorithm aggregated data about them and decided they would not be a good candidate for law school. And we're not quite to that latter scenario yet, but we're not that far away. So this is a perfect time for all of us to be taking stock, yeah. limiting what we can in terms of the sharing in our own life so that our kids are not overexposed, and also working as much as possible toward collective solutions spaces. Yeah, and I, I just would add one thing, which is I think as, as, as we're listening to this and thinking about these issues, think about the stuff that you're posting about yourself. Because particularly if you're a young person, that you might say, I mean, I, a friend of mine told me this story about one of his kids sent him a text saying, or posted us on, on one of the social media sites saying, well, I'm at the airport, I've got a couple of hours between flights, and I'm going to go out and smoke some dope behind the terminal. And you think that's the kind of thing that shows up on a job interview or something like that. So we, we need to not only think about how this sharing is affecting our kids, it's how it could be affecting ourselves. My grandparents had this posted in the nursery in their house. Children learn what they live. And so if we as their parents and educators and grandparents and other trusted adults are modeling a let-it-all-hang-out approach, that is what they are going to learn mm -hmm. no matter what they're taught at school. Yep. And we need to think about that kind of privacy protection starting at home, both in terms of how we protect them, but also in terms of how we empower them to protect themselves. Leah Plunkett's the author of Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. Leah, thank you very much. It was great to have you. It was wonderful to be here. And before we go, a special thanks to Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They proudly serve the Armed Forces, Department of Defense, veterans, and their families. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.